y'all doing well out there? Good to see you. Hope you're doing great. Uh, my name is Michael Singer. I'm the pastor here at our Lake Norman campus. I want to draw attention to one thing. I didn't hear it in the service today, but that don't mean it wasn't uh, talked about. Um, I'm on staff, so sometimes I don't know what's going on. Um, but out in the lobby, there's, you'll see a shopping cart near that big receipt that talks about Kingdom Builders. Uh, but there are these booklets in there. So about a week and a half ago, we had a, a family night at our central campus, and it was just a time to talk about, hey, here's where Freedom House spends money, here's all the different areas and all that stuff. It's just an open look into who we are as a church. We don't wanna, we're not trying to hide stuff. We really want to be open, and that booklet uh, will display and do all that. So as a family, if you didn't make it and you haven't grabbed that, grab that out of that shopping cart out there. Uh, you can take that home and look at it. And so let's take a moment. I love the fact since I've been here uh, at this church for many years that the pastors have always been open like that and shared about the finances. So let's just give them a clap of honor for just doing that. Uh, hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I see nobody's taking a nap yet from the tryptophan from the turkey. So glad you're here. Uh, I was able to go down my family to Louisiana. That's where I'm from originally. But I had not been to Louisiana in probably 18 plus years so some of my family down there, uh, yeah, thanks for all the sentiment of all the awes that happened a little bit. My family uh, haven't met any of my kids, some of my family down there. So we had a great time, had this nice Airbnb house, and it was really fun and good travels. Uh, but I'm glad to be back here with you all because today we are wrapping up this series we've been in, A Thousand Hills. Uh, and so this series has really been based out of Psalm chapter 30 verse 10, sorry, Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. And God is talking to the children of Israel, the people that have a relationship with him. And he's letting them know, hey, I appreciate all the, the bull sacrifices and all the things you're doing uh, as a way of thanksgiving, but please don't let your giving and your sacrifice ever be thought of as something that you're doing for me. Like, keep it in, a, in an area of thankfulness, but don't do it like you're doing me a favor. Ultimately, God is letting them know, hey, look, it's not really me that needs you, but it actually is you that needs me. And that same principle is there for us to either accept or reject today. Is to say, God, you know what? You need me. You need me to do it my way. You need me to be involved in the plan you got for me. Or we can say, you know what, God? I don't, you don't need me. I actually need you. And so that's the context of this whole series is that God, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills and a bunch of other stuff about his character and his nature and who he is. And he desperately wants to give all of himself to us, but we have to understand that we have a need for him <clears throat> in our lives. The question that I want us to uh, think about, roll around in our head, not just today, but when we walk out of these doors through the next week, through the next month, I just pray that hopefully this question, the Holy Spirit will just bring it up to you as you're going through your day. But the question I wanna talk about today is, are we content or contentious? Are we content or are we contentious? Now, the whole content part probably would have been a good message to do before Thanksgiving because you know, when you eat that second plate of food and you feel good, that wrestling of, should I go back and get another plate and actually feel miserable? Uh, being content with the amount of food we have might have been a challenge for you over this Thanksgiving. But in this message today, it's not just Thanksgiving this question arises. This question comes up in every aspect, every area of our life. 
Maybe we're handling a situation at work or going through, going through something at work. The question's there. Are we content? Or are we being contentious? Interacting with our family, maybe over the holidays, or just our family that we see all the time. Are we being content? Or are we being contentious? Whenever you come down that exit ramp and pop on 77 and you see traffic is backed up, are we content? Or are we contentious? What about somebody that accuses us of something, how we respond? Are we content? Are we contentious? Are we, am I having conflict with my spouse? Are my kids not listening in those moments? Am I gonna be content? Or am I gonna operate from a place of contentiousness? Walking through a difficult situation, maybe a hard time, maybe it's something physically, maybe something mentally, emotionally, maybe a tough relationship, whatever it is, we're walking through that hard time. Are we gonna be content? Or are we gonna be contentious? What about our livelihood? Things that just we enjoy, the things that are a part of our life, our job, you know, our, our income, the things we're able to purchase, the hobbies, all the livelihood, the things that make up that livelihood in our life. Am I content with that or am I being contentious? What about when things don't go my way? What is my attitude like? Is it content or contentious? What about when I'm driving down the street, when I'm sitting at home by myself, uh, when I just have those moments where I'm self-reflecting? On my life, who I am, maybe hurts, maybe pains, maybe challenges, difficulties, whatever the scenario is in my life, am I being content or am I being contentious? You know, as we walk through life and as we encounter circumstances in life, I think there's a question that can help us land on whether or not we're willing to be content or whether or not we're going to fall into the trap of being contentious. And the question is this. The question is, am I actually willing to follow God and what he has for me? Or am I more willing to follow my plans and what I have for myself? It is our relationship with God and how we view that that will determine whether or not I am content with life and whether or not I choose him in situations or I choose myself and what I want to do. The more we can choose God and his plan, I believe the more that we'll find today that we can walk in contentment. But the more that we want to do things our way, we're going to continue to be at a space and a place and a, a, a demeanor of contentiousness where we're just contending, we're battling, we're wrestling, we don't understand, we're mad. All those things that come with being contentious as, a plo- as opposed to being at a place of rest. There's a principle that we're going to look at to start this out. And I'm going to look in the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But It's a principle that I believe has the potential to set a mindset, a foundational mindset for us to begin to pursue being content in life and go against being contentious. And as before we start reading the scripture in the Old Testament, I want to set up what's going on. We're going to read in a moment in Exodus chapter 15. And this is a place in the story of the children of Israel, this historical moment where they have been freed from captivity from the Egyptians by God, something they desperately wanted and desired. And he had, Moses had just split the Red Sea. God said, raise your staff. They went through this body of water that parted so they could walk through on dry land. And all their enemies were killed. And they find themselves on the other end of this miraculous moment that created a freedom that they had been longing for for many, many years. So what do you do whenever you've seen something miraculous and something that you've been waiting for for years? When you see that happen, what do you do? Well, you do like you would do in a musical. You break out into song. That's exactly what they did. 
When you read Exodus 15, when they come through the waters, Moses and all the people begin to sing. They begin to sing and say, God, you are Lord of the heavens. You are everything. You parted the Red Seas. You're, you're the one who gave us our freedom. They begin to just, they're so elated, they begin to just lavish words on God of how much they love him and see him. And they sing about this place that God's gonna give them where they're gonna inhabit and they're gonna have a place where they can live. And they also talk about, you know what, God, all these other people that are inhabiting these other parts of the land your hand is gonna go out against them and they're not gonna be able to touch us. And we pick up their song in Exodus chapter 15, verses 16 through 18, and part of their, the last part of their song says this, terror and dread fall upon them, talking about all these other people groups, because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your uh, own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then we jump to the New Testament and we see something similar mentioned in Revelation chapter five, verse nine, the end of times. This particular verse is referring to Jesus and it says this, and they sang a new song. You, talking about Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hopefully you caught the moments in those passages where I stopped and spoke louder and dropped my cadence down a little bit because in both of those, the key principle there that I believe can help us begin to walk and live at a place of being content is simply remembering that we were purchased, that Jesus gave his life for you and me and that he purchased us with his blood. We didn't do anything to earn it. We definitely didn't deserve it. And in the midst of that, he loved us enough to purchase us and that should be a good foundational part to get us to understand, all right, understanding that he's purchased me, how can I now live content? How can I now show God that I appreciate his purchase? I want to talk to you about two possessions that I've had in my life. The first one was when I was in high school. In high school, my sister, I have two older sisters, the one that's just a little bit more than a year older than me. She was a senior in high school and I was a junior. And we had a pickup truck that we drove to school. And it was a Ford Ranger, had the, the little bit of an extended cab, you know, the jump seats that come out the side. So you couldn't eat too much turkey if you actually wanted to ride in the back back there. Very tight quarters. But with this pickup truck, we loved it. It got us from place to place. But it was missing something, in our opinion. The, the speaker system just didn't have enough thump to it. Like, my chest didn't vibrate enough. And at that age, I thought I needed that. And so what did we do? My sister and I, we didn't get outrageous. We didn't buy, you know, big 12-inch woofers or anything like that. Um, we just wanted to remove the factory speaker and upgrade it a little bit so that we could make a little bit more noise as we were driving around town with our windows down. I see some of you nodding. I don't even know if kids get into that today. Back in my day, that was the thing, boy, riding around with your music blaring. So we got these speakers we thought it was the greatest thing ever. We both put our money in. We purchased these speakers. <sighs> Do you know that uh, 
It didn't last long before those speakers started making noises like they had blown. They were rattling a little bit after a year or two. And then eventually I just got to an age where I didn't care about that anymore. Like having the sound system just wasn't worth it. The thing I had purchased didn't really end up having the reward that I wanted. But there's another possession that I have that I currently still have to this day. I was getting ready to head on a trip years ago, maybe five, six years ago. And uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and part of the trip was we were going to be out on a boat on the ocean, and I needed to get some sunglasses. Now, I was not, to this point, an avid sunglass wearer. And so my buddy was like, hey, man, I have these sunglasses. Why don't you take them? You can have them. I don't even like them. It was great because not only were they sunglasses, but they had that little band around them, uh, that little wire thing that will hold it on your head and on your neck, which I love. I know it makes me look like an old dad, but I love it. And I love these sunglasses. I wore them. And do you know that after that trip, almost on a daily basis, I wear those sunglasses. They're hanging from my rearview mirror because remember, they have that little band around them. They're hanging from my rearview mirror and I pick them up and I wear them all the time. I have fallen in love with those sunglasses. And the reason why I love them so much is I didn't have to spend anything on them except I eventually had to buy another band. So there was very minimal cost. But the reward of those sunglasses, the fact that I use them all the time, I wear them all the time, and they've lasted for so long, just makes the purchase worth it. There's a reward attached to it. And so here's what I've learned from these two items and the contrast of these two items is that the reward of a purchase comes with the breadth of connection and the frequency of engagement. The reward of a purchase comes from the breadth of connection. So how long I've had it. So these sunglasses, had them a long time, and I'm going to keep them until they break apart, and I'll probably buy another pair. But then it also comes from the frequency of engagement. I told you that I now use these sunglasses on almost a daily basis. That is what makes the purchase so great, is that reward that comes from those two things that makes that purchase worthwhile. Do you know it's the same thing with us in our relationship with God? I told you, Old Testament, New Testament says we were purchased. The question really is, is how are we rewarding God for that purchase? You see, I believe when we begin to spend time with God, and whenever we do that for a long period of time, that he gets us to a place and we open ourselves up to actually understand to what it lives, what it means to live with being content. And I believe when we get to a place where we are content with every aspect of our life, I believe that that is the reward that God has for the purchase that he made for you and me. Being in a place of contentment does not just happen. You're not just gonna wake up. You're not just gonna start your relationship with God. It's not just gonna be some great moment that changes everything for you. And all of a sudden, you're content. It actually, there's a working out of learning what it means to be content. And sometimes on the, along the way, we can find ourselves being contentious in those moments and contending with what is going on in our life. And I wanna look at the children of Israel because we see how they had a moment where everything seemed right and good and they were so excited, but how being contentious can come up and try to lure you away from the contentment that God actually wants to give us. So I read that passage 
in Exodus uh, chapter 15, and I want to continue the story for you and tell you what happens with the children of Israel. Remember, they sing in. They're so excited. God, we love you. You're going to plant us forever and ever. We're with you. And then slap, life hits them in the face. Because when you continue on in that story, it says they go out in the desert for three days. And when you've been in the desert for three days, you get a little thirsty. I don't know if you've ever experienced a time where you've just been extremely parched and just dying of thirst. I've had moments where I've woken up in the middle of the night and I've just been, my throat is just dry as can be. And I grab that water glass and I try to chug it, chug it, chug it. And it's almost like water hitting dry ground. It just seems to almost choke me because I can't get it down. It's like my mouth can't absorb it. My throat can't absorb it. But they were extremely thirsty. So they come to this place after three days being in the desert. They come to this water hole and they go to start drink. But it's not good because the water is bitter. And so when the water's bitter, they get mad and they complain to Moses. Why did you bring us out here? Why did God bring us out here? We're going to thirst to death. He saved us, and now we're just going to be out here in the desert. We're going to thirst to death. So God, Moses prayed to God and said, hey, I got this problem. They're mad. What are we going to do? He said, find that log over there, throw it in the water. He did. He says the water became sweet. And then God, God gathered them around. He said something to the children of Israel. He said, I want you to understand something. If you're willing to obey my commands and believe that I have a best in mind for you and follow that, then none of the plagues, none of the curses that I put on Egypt will ever happen to you if you're willing to follow me. And then he takes them to this place where it's almost like an oasis and he reminds them that I'm God in heaven and I will provide and I will take care of you and I purchased you so I will give you everything you need but you have to trust me. And did they trust him? No. They left this beautiful place and we get into Exodus chapter 16. We've only moved a few verses, y'all, and they're mad again. This time... They're mad about not having food. And they get angry with Moses. Why did God bring us out here, our livestock? We're all going to die out here. Why did this happen? We could have been back in Egypt eating all the food we had. Why did you bring us out here? And I love what God did. God actually provided tangible food for them. And as I was reading this story, the food is called what they called manna. The people then called it manna. And I want you to think about your favorite biscuit or breadstick or whatever. That's what manna was. Whatever you like, manna was that. It was like these flakes of bread that they could go and eat. And as I was reading this story and I was listening to how God provided, I saw something I never saw before in this story. I saw the unique way in which God provided. Not just the food, but the way he went about giving the food, and what he asked them to do for him. And it all revolves around tithing. I never noticed this. No law about tithing, no laws about giving, but this story and the way God provided was in a way that resembles and shows us how important tithing is to God. Now, the measurement of grain, so this bread they were getting was made by grain. The standard measurement of grain for the children of Israel they used was the ephah. It was ultimately about 22 liters. God told them to only collect an omer for as many people as they had in their house. Do you know what an omer is? An omer is a tenth of an ephah. So he told them, I want, I'm going to give you the tithe of what the total is so you can be sustained and so you can have your livelihood. And then he told Aaron and Moses, the only thing I require is I want you to collect an omer, a tenth 
of what I've provided and what I've given, and I want you to put it in a jar because I want people from this generation and all the generations to come to remember me, and I want you to place that jar before me in my presence and offer it up to me so that everyone will know that I am their provider. Do you know that's what tithing is as we talk about it today, as we believe in it as a church, as we look at the Bible? It's simply us going, God, you provided everything for me, and I'm going to present a tenth back to you because I trust you and I believe in you, and I'm content with what you've given me. Now, you would think the children of Israel, after they saw God provide the, the bread in the morning and the quail in the evening, you would think they'd be good, right? No, they still weren't content. The Bible said they were to collect enough for each person in their family for one day. If you don't collect more, just what you need to eat for one day. Do you know what they did? They collected more. They tried to save it. They tried to hold on to it. But the next day came around and everything they had saved was eaten by worms and was moldy and was nasty. They weren't content. He also told them on the sixth day, I don't want you working on the seventh day collecting stuff. So on the sixth day, I want you to collect twice as much for your family so that it'll, it'll provide for you for two days. Were they content? No. You know how I know? Because they went out on the seventh day looking for that manna and that bread and all that stuff and nothing was there. And then we come to chapter 17. They're struggling with being content and we get to 17 and it's like the crescendo of their lack of being content. It says this in 17, starting in verse one. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. About a chapter and a half ago, didn't we just have an incident with water that I just told you about, like the whole bitter water and everything? Look, this is not a long time that has passed. For us, it's a chapter and a half. But it's not like 40 years for them. I don't know the exact time frame, but it's not that long. Why had they seen God show up and help them with thirst before and not expect him to help them now? Why have I seen God show up in my life before, maybe in something similar that I'm going through now, and I don't really trust him? I contend with whether or not he can actually help me. I love the question that Moses or I love what he says to them. He says, hey, why do you contend with me and why do you tempt God? And I looked up the meaning of that word tempt and what Moses meant when he said that. Here's the definition of tempt in the context here. It says to put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including imperfections, faults, and other qualities. So the children of Israel are not content. And so what are they doing? They're trying to ascertain the quality of who God is. 
haven't they seen who God is already? Haven't they seen enough of him showing up? Hasn't there been enough miracles? Hasn't there been enough provision for them to understand that he is their provider and will take care of them? When we wrestle with contention, then we're always gonna combat against who God's nature really is. And when we're combating against who his nature really is, then we're not able to walk in that place of content, that place of ease, and that place of rest. The story picks up. In Exodus 17, finishing off verses 5 through 7, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also taking your hand the rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Reading this, not being there in that moment, it's easy for me to go, how in the world do they ask that last question? Is God here for us or not? I mean, he split a sea for us to walk through and he killed all of our enemies and the freedom that we sought after forever and ever, we actually have access to it. He's just given me water that I couldn't drink and now I can drink. I was complaining and upset and scared about I wouldn't have food and he gave me enough food that provided for me when I couldn't provide my own food because the area was not ready and we didn't have a place to have food. How in the world could they say that? You know, I, I think it would have been nice if the children of Israel would have operated like this verse in Proverbs chapter 19, it's verse 23. It says, the fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. It doesn't say absent of trouble. Please take note of that. It says untouched, meaning that when trouble comes, my ability to be content and to follow God, that trouble doesn't touch me at a place that it shakes my contentment. It doesn't push me to a place where like the children of Israel that I become contentious and I begin to say, God, the God that I've seen, the nature that I've experienced, where is that same nature? Who are you? Where are your faults? I see faults in you because you're not willing to take care of me. What I learned from the children of Israel about contention is that contention arises when the outcome starts to outweigh the process. When the thing that I desire, God, I really wish you would help my marriage. I want you to restore it. When that outcome becomes more than the process of what he wants to show me, when the outcome of my physical body being in pain and me desiring God to heal it, when that becomes more than the process of what he wants to teach me along the way, then I might begin to a place of contention where I don't trust his character. When those things that I desire in my life, those hobbies, you know, that house, that job, that car, those friendships, those relationships, how I want to look before people, the desire I have to be in friendships for people to like me, all those things, when they come and that outcome becomes way more than the process, then we miss out on the contentment that God has for us and us understanding and resting in his nature. The children of Israel were walking very much in a manner of contentiousness. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust his character. 
and they would contend against him and who he was and his character, even though he had provided time and time again. And I'm not just talking about wrestling with things. We're gonna have things that we wrestle with in life. We're gonna have moments where we struggle, moments where we ask questions. But they were at a point where they had seen him work and they didn't trust who he was. That's when we get into a place of being contentious. So what does it look like to be content? I want to go to the New Testament in Philippians, and I want to read a passage of Scripture written by Paul. And let's see if we can see how to be content and what that looks like. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, these Philippian believers And he's letting them know a little bit about their relationship. Because you see, Paul never asked or required or put any strain on the churches in which he ministered and talked to. He actually would work as a tent maker to try to make sure all his needs were met so he didn't have to lean on the churches that he was helping and sharing about Jesus. But the Philippian church was a church that was historically known when other churches didn't give anything to Paul, they would send stuff to help him out just with his daily needs. And here we have again where they are sending gifts to him. And I love that Paul doesn't say thank you for the gifts right away. He speaks to the relationship he has with the Philippians. He says thank you for your concern." But he follows that up kind of like God did in Psalm when he told the, Israel, I, the Israelites, I, have, I own a cow, cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need what you have. He follows that up with a place of contentment and says, hey, look, I have learned, meaning that he didn't arrive there, that it took time for him to learn this. I have learned what it means to have and not have. I've learned what it means to understand that God is going to provide all my needs. And when he ends that verse is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about that I'm some wizard, I can do anything I want. He's talking about the things that God has given me to do, the things that he knows I need to get done what he's called me to do, to exercise the gifts that he's given me. Those things for Paul, he said, I am good because God will give me the strength to do it. That's a place of contentment. That's a place of just, all right, God, I've seen who you are in my life. I see what your word says about who you are, and I've seen that lived out and worked out. And though this circumstance looked like you're not here, I know that you're here, and I trust your character. And as I walk through this process, I'm going to allow you to teach me what you need to teach me because I understand that you purchased me with a great price. And I'm going to walk in contentment, and I'm not going to be shaken. How do we know when we are living from a place of contentment? We know when the pull of our circumstance is less than the presence of God. 
when the pull of whatever is going on, when it's trying to drag us away, when our circumstance is trying to get us anxious, trying to get us in worry, when our circumstance is trying to pull us down a road, trying to get us to go into a temptation, trying to get us into sin, when our circumstance says, you deserve this, you've worked hard, this belongs to you, go get it. When our circumstance says, all you have to do is use all your energy and all your effort, you're the only one that can do this, nobody else can give this to you. When our circumstance tries to hit that wound that we have and tries to call us out to do something we were never intended to do or to react or respond in a way that God never intended for us to respond. It's the presence of God that we have to get into and allow to supersede the pull of that circumstance. I love what Paul says to Timothy as he's training Timothy as a young leader. He reminds him of this idea of contentment in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Not just godliness by itself. Not just godliness to where, God, I'm gonna follow you, I believe in your commands, I'm gonna obey them. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When we get to a place where we can become content in any area of our life, then it's a moment where we let God know and we set a foundation that our cravings will not be for the things of this world. They'll actually be for the things that God has for us. What I love about Paul is that Paul was able to operate with generosity out of a place, out of a, a stance of contentment. Meaning that when he didn't want to pull on those churches, when he just wanted to give and be generous and share God's word, when he wanted to financially be at a place where he could help, he did that from a place of contentment. And when we learn and understand that our generosity needs to come from a place of contentment, then we'll begin to show and reveal what our relationship with God is really like. Generosity is not about a number. It's not about what you give. It's about how you give it from a place of contentment. So though the Bible has guidelines and structures and talks about a tithe and returning that 10% and an offering anything above that, and though we say it from this platform, that is just a method. God still says, will you give because I purchased you and because you're content with that? Like, have I not done enough? Michael, have I not done enough in your life for you to just give a little bit to show that you're content? He has done enough in my life. And I'll continue to give. And I'll continue to work on being content as I give. And I won't stop giving. I won't stop giving of my time. I won't stop giving of my attitude. I won't stop giving of my energy. I'll continue to learn because I haven't arrived in all those. I'm still learning how to be content in areas. But the areas where I found contentment, man, it's free. There's a freedom there. There's a peace there. There's a joy there. If you will, stand to your feet with me. And as you stand, I want you to just close your eyes because I want to take a moment and I want to think about this purchase that Jesus made. This purchase that God sent his son to die for us. And as you sit there just thinking to yourself, 
with your eyes closed, I just want you to know that you are worth the purchase. That you're not too bad. There's nothing you have to do to fix it or make it work, but you are worth the purchase. Jesus displayed how content he was with laying his life down for our life when he sat in the garden and he said, God, if you can find another way, find it. And here's the statement of contentment. Not my will, but your will be done. Have you given God access to your life? Have you rewarded him by just simply saying, I want a relationship with you and I believe in your purchase and I accept that today. If you're here and you want a relationship with God, I want you to respond to that purchase and just say, God, I want a relationship with you. Thank you for purchasing me. Just raise your hand up and you can put it back down once you've raised it. I see your hand, young lady. Thank you. Anybody else? I see your hand, ma'am. Thank you. Anybody else? God, I believe in your purchase and I want that. Life is hard to find contentment in all areas, but it's something that God desires of us. And if you're here today and there's an area of your life that you feel like, man, I'm just, I, I haven't been content and I want to work on it. I just want you to put your hand on your heart just to signify to God, God, I heard your Holy Spirit speaking to me and I haven't been content. I've been trying to do things my way. I've been contending with my effort and I just want to rest in your character. I'm going to say a prayer. I want you to repeat this. Everyone in here, if you have your hand on your heart, raise your hand, join in with them. Repeat this loud after me. Say, God, I love you. And I thank you that you decided to purchase me with your son's death and his resurrection. I have been made whole. So right now, help me to be content with all that you give me. To be content with the process of life and to follow you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all give a hand clap for those people.